Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 429 for February 8th, 2015. This week, we'll take a look at Camtasia, one of the easiest ways to create video documentation for teaching. As news reporting moves increasingly from print on paper to print on the screen, new methods of organizing content are appearing. And the FCC plans to take the first step in a journey that will end at the Supreme Court. In short circuits, guess who doesn't score very well in using social media? And if you've been thinking about buying a Raspberry Pi, a new version is out. On the website only, Spare Parts looks at a way to save roaming charges for international travelers, the dangers of password fatigue, and the cost of a distributed denial-of-service attack. If a picture is worth a thousand words, would a one-minute video be worth 1.8 million words? This would assume 30 frames per second, of course. If you've ever had to explain how something works on a computer to a person who doesn't quite understand computers, you may have wished that you could record what's on your screen and just send a video. Well, you can do that. TechSmith has two applications. One of them might be just what you need. First, there is Snagit. That's an application that allows users to capture video and trim away unwanted parts. The second is Camtasia, which can accept captured video files from Snagit or create its own. The big difference is what you can do with the video once you have what I'll call the raw file. Maybe you need just a simple video capture to illustrate a process to a single person. In this case, you probably won't be too concerned about narration or a professional-looking production, so Snagit will do everything you need to do. But if you need to create a video that will be seen by a lot of people, perhaps something that will be posted on a corporate intranet or even on the internet, production values are more important. Here's an example. Let's say that I need to explain how to modify a paragraph tag in Word. I might want to do that because I'm often surprised to find that someone hasn't used paragraph tags when I've given a document to edit and format. Instead of making a single change to a paragraph tag and having it apply to every like paragraph in the document, heading 1 for example, I have to strip away the existing formatting. The problem is that somebody spent a great deal of time applying that formatting, and it's formatting that can't really be used then I need to spend a small amount of time removing it so that I can spend a fairly large amount of time recreating the formatting with paragraph styles. So yes, I might want to create a video to show that. If I wanted to show just one person how to change the paragraph format, I might send a video that looks a lot like the before version you'll see on the TechBiter Worldwide website. When I recorded the video, clearly I was at a loss for words occasionally, and the mouse wandered aimlessly around the screen. But for a one-off explanation, it'd be fine. But if I needed to put that presentation on a corporate website, editing would help a lot. 
The raw video is nearly a minute and a half long, while the finished video is just a minute and three seconds long, even though I added an 11-second introduction. The mouse cursor is highlighted when appropriate, and random mouse movements have been removed. So make sure you check the TechBiter Worldwide website to see the before and after videos. If you're looking for more than just a video snapshot, you need Camtasia. After creating a project in Camtasia, import or create the media. You'll see a screenshot of that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and at the bottom of the screen you'll notice a bar with some white spikes. The white spiky things on track two, those are the audio that I mumbled while I was doing the recording. That audio, of course, is removed in the final presentation. Track one is always present in Camtasia, and it can't be edited. It simply illustrates the full length of the presentation. I added a track three for introductory music and placed a section at the beginning of track two. That's the produced video title, one of many that Camtasia provides in a library of downloadable media. The raw video in track two then needed to be edited to remove those areas where I was mumbling to myself or just moving the mouse around without any apparent reason. I also added highlighting on the mouse cursor when appropriate, and there's a crossfade between the produced video title and the main part of the video. There's also a fade-out at the end of the video. Taken together, these make a more professional-looking appearance. After getting all the pieces arranged and put together, I added a track 4 for narration and turned the audio down in track 3 so that the narration could be heard. When you finish with the video, you need to create a file that can be shared. In this case, I selected the MP4 format with a smart player so that the exported file is created with everything needed to play it. If you plan to upload the file to Vimeo or YouTube, you don't need the player, so you can select one of the other options or create your own option. The options are far less varied than you'll find in applications such as Adobe Premiere, but the benefit of this limited list of selections is the reduced chance for confusion. During the output process, you'll be asked to create a name for the finished production and specify a location for it. And when the process is complete, Camtasia reports the results of the export process. TechSmith's other program, Snagit, is available for both Windows and OS X computers. Camtasia Studio is a Windows application, but TechSmith also offers Camtasia for Mac. There are differences in what each of these applications can do. Snagit, whether it's on a PC or a Mac, can capture and edit images, record and trim video, and import images from smartphones and tablets via Fuse. Camtasia Studio and Camtasia for Mac cannot capture or edit still images, but both add the ability to edit video. The editing functions vary between PCs and Macs, with the PC version generally offering features that the Mac version lacks. Windows users can download and install accessories to customize Camtasia Studio. The downloads include music tracks, themes, and produced video titles. The free TechSmith Fuse mobile app makes it possible to move photos and videos from a mobile device into Camtasia for editing. If you need to provide video-based training that shows people how something works on a computer, you should take a look at Camtasia. Although you can capture and trim video with Snagit, Camtasia includes the tools that will allow you to create a more professional presentation. Camtasia provides powerful features in an interface that's easy to understand. 
In my example video, I recorded only part of the screen, the part with Microsoft Word. You can record the full screen if you want. It's all up to you. The recordings are clear so that you can start with high-quality video and add the highlights, the callouts, and the transitions you want to create a presentation that won't put viewers to sleep. Now, at $300, Camtasia Studio is considerably more expensive than the $50 Snagit, but it is money well spent if you need more than just basic video captures. The bottom line for Camtasia is five cats. Creating business videos doesn't get much easier than this. From recording the screen and capturing live audio, to adding transitions and video callouts, to inserting sound effects and background music, Camtasia covers everything you'll need to do if you want to create an informative instructional video. The program is sufficiently comprehensive without being overwhelming, and Windows users can even add embedded quizzes to their videos. For more information, check the TechSmith Camtasia website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Thirty years ago, the daily newspaper landed on just about everyone's doorstep. Most of us, back then, watched one of the big three network evening news programs, and we even heard periodic radio newscasts during the day, even on top 40 music stations. The Internet has largely supplanted all of those. News magazines such as Time and Newsweek are mere shadows of their earlier versions, Newsweek tried for a while to exist as an electronic publication, but it's now back in print. The news magazines have traditionally filled an important place in journalism. Because they're published weekly, they have more time than newspapers and electronic media to ponder the meaning of an event, and they can provide more time and space for every article than can newspapers, radio, or television. It seems, though, that the 24-hour news cycle and the Internet have conspired to render news magazines pretty much unimportant. Now they're facing another challenge in the form of news aggregators that allow users to construct their own magazines. Whether this is good or bad remains to be seen. News magazines once had kind of a generalized political point of view. U.S. News and World Report tended conservative, Time tended liberal, Newsweek tried to chart a course down the middle. When users create their own publications, they generally use the information that fits their political worldview. Liberals avoid articles by conservatives. Conservatives avoid articles by liberals. This tends to reduce opportunities for compromise. In other words, it increases polarization. But, as we like to say, it is what it is. And late in 2014, the news aggregator application Flipboard made some major changes to its interface. It added a huge number of sources. Although Flipboard does have a browser-based function for desktop systems, it's really intended to be used on a phone or a tablet. Apple, Android, or Windows doesn't make any difference. And it is the best presentation I've seen for a news magazine on a portable device. Some smartphone manufacturers, such as Samsung and Microsoft, include the new Flipboard app on their phones, and Flipboard has worked with some of the larger Internet news publishers to package and monetize their feeds. The app has more than 100 million users. It is a popular download at the Apple, Android, and Microsoft app stores.
The user interface actually resembles a printed magazine with cover stories and content sections. Each article is presented in an abbreviated format that the user can click to read the full article in the source website. I find that I'm reading fewer paper books these days, but I'm reading a lot more books overall because my Nexus 7 tablet is about the size of a paperback book, and it can contain hundreds of books. And yes, I am one of those people who reads two or more books more or less concurrently. As a result of all this, a tablet-based news magazine is a natural fit, at least for me. Following last year's update, Flipboard, which used to summarize stories that were mentioned in the various social networks you follow, now has a much broader base of articles to choose from, and because it allows each user to specify topics to follow, it provides an uncommonly personal experience. Other news apps exist, and Flipboard's creation of what it calls the Daily Edition moves it into competition with apps such as Yahoo News Digest and Smart News. It exceeds those applications, though, by establishing a personal magazine, and the personal magazine bundles all of the topics you want to follow into a publication. That publication can be any size you want it to be. Flipboard seems to be attempting to bring users back to the application more than once a day. The Daily Edition provides a quick review of top-of-mind events in the morning, while the personal magazine offers more detailed accounts of topics that the user wants to follow. The personal magazine includes stories that social media friends have shared, as well as stories from all of those topics that you've followed, HDR photography or website design, for example. And the menu is a big one you'll be able to choose from more than 30,000 topics. This is something that the competing services can't do, at least not yet. The daily edition is curated. Uh, curated. That seems to be the modern equivalent of edited. So the daily edition is curated by a team of curators, or I perhaps would call them editors. The team is headed by Time's former director of digital editorial development, Josh Quitner, the daily edition, delivered every morning, includes a quick list of general news stories on topics that include the usual suspects. Breaking news, sports, finance, business, technology. That kind of thing. If you have a smartphone or a tablet, it's worth looking into. The Federal Communications Commission will vote on two important topics near the end of the month. On Thursday, the 26th, votes are scheduled on a request from two cities that could allow them to provide high-speed Internet service in violation of Tennessee and North Carolina state laws. The FCC is also expected to vote that day on a proposal to reclassify the Internet as a utility. Rumors have suggested that the FCC will vote to allow Chattanooga, Tennessee and Wilson, North Carolina to create their own municipal Internet service providers. Needless to say, the big cable providers are opposed. These companies also spend a lot of money on lobbying, so it's going to get Congress involved. Currently, cities in Tennessee, North Carolina and many other states are expressly prohibited from providing Internet service as a utility to residents. Those state laws, the ones that forbid cities from providing services, are ones that were crafted decades ago in cooperation with, now wait for this, attorneys from cable companies. 
The poor cable companies will be extremely unhappy at the end of the day on the 26th because the FCC is also said to be planning to classify Internet service the way it should have been classified from the beginning as a utility. Classifying the Internet as a utility would give the FCC power to ensure that Internet service providers cannot throttle speeds arbitrarily, that they cannot block access to websites that might compete with services the Internet service providers own, and that they cannot create fast lanes for services that are willing to pay a ransom for such services. The FCC's actions, obviously, will not be the last word. Congress will get involved, and the big Internet service providers are certain to file suit. In reporting the rumors, the New York Times characterized the utility decision as widely expected, and FCC Chairman Tom Wheeler eliminated all surprise at midweek by writing an article for Wired magazine. In the article, Wheeler reminded us all that the telephone system itself was once a closed and tightly guarded monopoly. The Internet wouldn't have emerged as it did, Wheeler wrote, if the FCC hadn't mandated open access for network equipment in the late 1960s. Before then, AT&T prohibited anyone from attaching non-AT&T equipment to the network. The modems that enabled the Internet, said Wheeler, were usable only because the FCC required the network to be open. A date at the end of the month will also bring unwelcome news for wireless providers because the decision is expected to include providers of wireless Internet service in the same group as those who provide wired service. Verizon and AT&T have paid millions over the years to maintain their ability to do what they want to do, regardless of what their customers want. Congress deregulated the cell phone industry 22 years ago to allow new carriers to enter the market. The industry has grown considerably since then. Things have changed radically. Cell phones are used more for data communications now than for voice communications, but they're still regarded and regulated as phones. According to the FCC, more than half of all Internet traffic now comes from smartphones and tablets. Remember the words of Bob Dylan back in the 60s? Your old road is rapidly aging. Please get out of the new one if you can't lend your hand. In short circuits, you might expect Facebook, Google, and Apple to be at the top of their game in social media. The communications company says it hasn't exactly worked out that way. Investus reviewed the use of social media by 500 major companies and named Cisco and HP first and second. Social media giant Facebook ranked 242nd in the company's analysis. Apple was all the way down at 416 and even mighty Google was well out of the top 10 at position 62. Ford, on the other hand, was in the 22nd spot, General Electric at 14, UPS at 21. Investus analyzed and scored the use of eight leading social media channels. Given that Facebook doesn't make much use of services other than Facebook, maybe it's no surprise that it scored near the bottom of the list. Investus looked at how companies use Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, and other popular social media, then ranked them on several criteria, including the range of content that they publish, their success in attracting an audience, and engagement with their followers. 
The study says that Apple makes little effort to engage with its corporate audience on social media, and it achieved a score of 9% overall, compared to 86% scored by Cisco. Facebook doesn't use other sites, but even on its own platform, Facebook's investor relations page fell far short of best practices, the report said. For example, it doesn't use videos or hashtags, and it doesn't appear to have responded to any posts left by users. That, in fact, is one of the major shortcomings of many companies. How many social media sites have you visited where questions have been asked two or three years ago and never answered? I noticed that the other day when I visited one of Adobe's own websites, one where users of applications could comment. Apparently, nobody from the company watches, and a question asked three years ago had never been addressed by anyone from the company. Investus says that Google maintains a presence across most of the key social media channels, even those that compete with Google, as well as on YouTube and Google+. Google has 2.5 million followers on LinkedIn, 19 million likes on Facebook, but it performed poorly in terms of providing corporate content and information about investor relations or corporate social responsibility. Marcus Ferguson, the research director at Investus, notes that business sectors that have faced challenges are making a notable effort with social media. As an example, he listed the oil and gas industry. Banking was the second highest overall behind technology, with Citigroup performing best. Cisco received the highest score overall. Ford received high marks for its inventive use of Twitter. You know, about a quarter of the top 100 NASDAQ-listed companies don't even maintain a corporate Twitter account. Time for a little Raspberry Pi. Raspberry Pi 2 Model B is now available from its worldwide distributors. You've probably heard of the credit card-sized single-board computers developed in the UK, used to teach basic computer science in schools. They're also pretty popular with hobbyists. Would you pay $35 for a computer? The Raspberry Pi and now the Raspberry Pi 2 are manufactured in several board configurations by various manufacturers, such as RS Components, Premier Farnell, and Egoman. Egoman produces a version for distribution only in China and Taiwan. In the U.S., you can obtain one from Allied Electronics. 35 bucks. There's a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And no, I don't get a kickback, by the way. But I might spend 35 bucks just to see what one of these little things does. The new model builds on the success of the first generation of Raspberry Pi, and it is intended for consumers, businesses, and educators as a result of its upgraded capabilities. These include a faster processor and twice as much internal memory, all the way up at one gigabyte. The Broadcom application processor contains an ARM Cortex-A7 quad-core CPU running at 900 megahertz. The processing speed and the available memory are a tiny fraction of what you'd find on a standard PC, but this new model is at least six times more powerful than the first-generation Raspberry Pi. The board layout, multimedia subsystem, and peripherals from the earlier model are compatible with the new version. The device has a 40-pin general-purpose input-output connector, four USB ports, and a switching power supply. You'll find more information about the Raspberry Pi Foundation on the organization's website. There's a link from the TechBiter Worldwide website. Oh, and speaking of the TechBiter Worldwide website, be sure to check out Spare Parts this week. 
Three pretty interesting articles, one about roaming charges, another on the dangers of password fatigue. Doesn't that sound nasty? And the cost of distributed denial-of-service attacks. All on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.